Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How's your week been, Dave? Good. Another week closer to March, which is always a good thing. Uh, February is just one of those months. Thank goodness it's only 28 days. But uh, no really complaints here uh, in in Pasadena. It's always sunny in Pasadena and usually 75. So things are good. Yeah, my kids have been longing for summer. I'm like, well, you know, you're making a pretty good progress through the winter at least. And, you know, school's getting along. They're kind of starting to see those final chapters of books beginning to emerge so they can kind of imagine summer. But we still do have snow on the ground. There's, yeah, there's those glimpses of hope. But I think they're getting a little bit ahead of themselves. We got to get through March and April 1st before we start thinking about the end of the school year and and the summer beyond. All right. Well, leading off this week, we are going to talk a little bit about the first major piece of legislation to pass the House's National Review reports. The Democrat-controlled House on Thursday passed the Equality Act, sweeping legislation that would add sexual orientation and transgender status as protected classes under the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And in editorializing against the law, the editors of National Review point out some of its consequences. The Equality Act would redefine sex to include gender identity, thus forcing every federally funded entity, most notably schools and colleges, to treat males who declare transgender status as if they were females. It would stamp out religious exemptions by regulating religious nonprofits, and even go so far as to block the Religious Freedom Restoration Act from applying to its provisions. And it would, as National Review's John McCormick has explained, greatly expand the number of businesses that count as public accommodations under the Civil Rights Act. Later in the editorial, uh, they warned that one of the effects of the law uh, could be to chill speech and bypass debate on important and complex issues, citing another event from this last week where Amazon decided to remove from its store of however many million books, uh, one authored by Notre Dame PhD, Ryan T. Anderson, currently the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center that was critical of transgender ideology. Now on the political side, from there it moves on to the Senate. And so it will have to get 60 votes presumably to overcome the danger of filibuster. And so it's likely to die there, but we see this as, as part of this broader push of the Biden administration and of the left to expand that landmark civil rights legislation into new areas. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know if um, they will push this in, in the Senate and, and rid themselves of the filibuster in, in attempting it, but it, it does sh- certainly show that uh, the priorities of the Biden administration and um, but the National Democratic Party, they're, they're really working hard on this issue. And uh, they see a window here uh, where uh, they have power in the House, uh, they have the White House, and, and then uh, the Senate, uh, at least is 50-50 tie, that um, they're going to try to get their things through uh, in these next uh, two years. So uh, what the blowback will be in 2022, I, I think there'll be quite a bit of blowback um, on an issue like this, but see what happens in the Senate. Yeah, what's striking about the legislation is that it's really making no attempt to build a broader coalition that might have been inclined to 
support this because of the way it addresses concerns about religious conscience and specifically exempts the application of Religious Freedom Restoration Act so that it really is going to force this ideology upon religious conscience, religious objectors in a way that there's not really any easy legal response to other than making broad First Amendment claims. So, you know, they, you, you could have framed legislation in a different way and, and tried to build a broader consensus. They chose not to go down that path. And that may, of course, be the death of the legislation. But if, if it is, it, it at least, as you're saying, reveals their desire to push just as far as they can in this direction. Exactly. All right, let's turn our attention now to our required reading as we approach the end of volume one of Democracy in America. So yeah, we're on the last chapter of volume one, chapter 10. And and what I'd like to do as we uh, finish out our discussion of, of volume one is just give a little bit of a review or summary of, of what we've been through up until this point. Uh, I mentioned, I think, the first episode of the season that uh, there are two volumes to Democracy in America. Uh, I've always argued that volume one is more of a historical accounting of democracy in America that is sprinkled with great philosophic insights. Volume two, where we'll go in a couple of weeks, uh, is more of a philosophical accounting of democracy in America that's sprinkled with history. So uh, Tocqueville is able to combine uh, both um, a great uh, philosophic uh, lens and a historical lens to give us the best sense as to where uh, the world is moving, the modern world is moving, and in particular where democracy is going in America. At the beginning of the book, uh, he mentions this great problem uh, as the world moves into a democratic epoch. Uh, will there be this allegiance between the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom, between moral dependence and political independence? Or will what happened in the French Revolution become really the story of the modern world, uh, not simply in Europe, but, but all across uh, the globe uh, as the world becomes democratized? Uh, America for Tocqueville is an interesting uh, case study uh, because it's a place where democracy has been planted in a way uh, that seems to bring out some of the better aspects. Um, the, the land is good. Uh, the people who um, settled here uh, were able to develop a set of mores uh, that, uh, that produced an ordered liberty. Uh, they were able to um, exercise sovereignty. Uh, they established the rule of law. Uh, later on, as uh, you move uh, to a more uh, national setting, uh, you see the framing of the federal constitution. So each of these things go into the development of democracy in America that is orderly. Uh, and yet there are you know, some problems. There are some dangers out there, uh, most notably the omnipotence or tyranny of the majority uh, that would exert itself uh, over the individual mind, uh, the public opinion uh, becoming a barrier to the proper exercise of, of liberty. So here at the end of volume one, he takes up the question of, of whether or not the tyranny of the majority can be tempered and whether or not the democratic republic within the United States can be uh, maintained. We spoke last week of the importance of uh, mores and religion and, and practical experience in doing that. But then here, interestingly, at the end of the volume, he, he brings up some really great problems 
that additionally uh, will be uh, will add fuel uh, to the fire uh, of of um, issues um, in in the country that might bring it down. And most notably, um, the first issue that he brings up is is the reality of the three races, what he calls the three races that find themselves uh, on the North American continent. And that's really kind of our coverage for today it deals with with those uh, three races and what uh, Tocqueville has to tell us uh, about their um, state in, in, 18, in the 1830s and, and what might happen uh, moving forward. So the three races, uh, Matt, are European Americans, African Americans, and Native Americans. Uh, Tocqueville writes, education, law, origin, and the external form of their features have raised an almost insurmountable barrier between them. Fortune has gathered them on the same soil, but it has mixed them without being able to intermingle them, and each pursues its destiny separately. So he'll bring up these, these factors that uh, determine the relationship between the races. So he'll, he'll talk about enlightenment, so the state of civilization or education for each of the races. He'll talk about who has power uh, within each of the races, relative power, and then who finds themselves happier or on the happier side of the equation. So enlightenment, power, and happiness are, are indicators of how races relate to one another. What's interesting in this case is that European Americans, Tocqueville says, are the most enlightened of the three groups. They have the most power of the three groups, and they seem to be the happiest of the three groups. But these don't these things together don't point out point toward, I should say, a virtuous exercise of of authority. Uh, that this inequality that is found between the races, in which you have superiors and inferiors, uh, produces op oppression, uh, despotism. So even with democracy, even with sovereignty, even with the rule of law, you have the prospect of uh, European tyranny uh, over um, these other races. And, and I think that uh, it's a really kind of insightful lesson as to, okay, how is it that when one group becomes powerful or is powerful uh, within a society, uh, how well do they treat the other? Uh, is there this process of assimilation or is this the, there this recognition of another's uh, human dignity uh, or even in the modern world um, to do these various prejudices stand in the way of treating people well? If you look at the context in which he's writing, if you talked about the tyranny of the majority, you'd probably be having Democrats think about Whigs and Whigs think about Democrats. And as de Tocqueville often does, I think in Democracy in America, he tries to broaden your moral imagination and so he says, okay, yeah, that, that may be interesting. <laughs> Whatever you think of the dangers of Andrew Jackson are as, as a good New England Whig. But have you considered the broader question of the tyranny that Whigs and Democrats are collectively exercising over African-Americans, over Native Americans? And, and the answer is probably no, as you'll get to in, in volume two when he talks about the, the, the spheres of sympathy, which the typical American has, they have a lot of sympathy for those that, that are like them. And, and the problem is that those that are like them, they define not uh, based upon the, the species level common humanity, but based upon distinctions of perceived racial differences or ethnic origins or things of this sort. 
what he'll do here, and I always break this reading down into three parts. Uh, there is really the the summary of of the three races and and how they uh, interact, uh, but then he goes into a closer examination of the Native American experience, and then uh, lastly a closer examination of the African American experience. He says of the Native Americans that uh, the general logic of their history is, has been to be pushed westward. Uh, they have not only withdrawn, but they have been destroyed. And the process of destruction really involves kind of a, a creep westward of civilization that um, kind of ruins hunting grounds. Um, uh, things are turned over or processed into uh, agriculture and um, a promise is made or, or, or uh, a deal is made uh, between uh, the European American settler and the Native American uh, that, quote, sell us your land and go live happily in those places that are to the West. And those places really aren't happy places. Those, those places aren't really place, places where uh, Native Americans uh, thrive. And, you know, here there's this really important philosophic point that Tocqueville makes on the nature of conquest. Um, you find this on page 316 if you're using the Mansfield Winthrop edition. Men generally need great and constant efforts in order to create lasting evils. But there is one evil that enters the world furtively. At first, one hardly perceives it in the midst of ordinary abuses of power. It begins with an individual whose name history does not preserve, it is deposited as a cursed seed on some point of the soil, then it nourishes itself, spreads without effort, and grows naturally with the society that has let it in. Uh, this evil is slavery. So he's, what, what's interesting here, as he pivots from the European uh, Native American relationship to the European-African-American relationship is, is he, he's pointing out that in each of these cases, there is a distinct notion that the conqueror has that the other is not, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, is not to be valued as a member of the species and hence um, is not to be considered as an end in themselves and can be thereby abused uh, without, um, uh, without feeling a sense uh, of, of uh, moral repugnancy. And I, and I think that point here that connects the relationship between the Native American and, and the African American from the European American uh, standpoint is while uh, the imperious nature of the relationship is, is, is different, one is enslaved and the other is pushed westward, there's really a lack of effort made on the part of the European American to practice uh, generosity, uh, to practice um, goodness to the other. He'll go on to say here uh, that uh, Washington, for example, and other founding fathers had suggested with regard uh, to uh, Native Americans that it is to our honor to treat them with goodness and even with generosity and then Tocqueville comments, but this noble and virtuous policy has not been followed. So, you know, one thing that I've always kind of worked on as, as a really great question of political philosophy and political history is, how is it that when right 
makes might and you become strong from your virtue. How is it and why is it thereafter that there's a tendency for that might to make right thereafter? So how do you stop things at the point where your virtue has made you strong and then you know how to exercise that strength in a virtuous way? Uh, sometimes that power that you amass, right, when you become strong, will then be utilized to do things to others that you would not have done unto you. I think one of the pieces of that story, at least, is that often when you start out in a position of weakness, virtue is really the only tool you have available, or claims of justice are the only tool that you have available, right? You're, you're weak. And so you have to plead justice and you make a lot of noise about justice and you think a lot about justice and you're perhaps persuaded by the arguments that you make, at least insofar as you project them against your, your opponents. But once you have power, then you're not confined to justice. You have another, you have another tool available to you. And of course, justice requires persuasion, requires that imagination I was speaking of earlier, where we, we see the dignity of the person across from us. And that's hard work. And it's difficult to, to cultivate that. And it's a lot easier to cut through whatever trouble you've got with an appeal to force and simply to do as you please and force others to suffer what they must. Yeah. And I go back to this paradigm that I brought up often in this, well, during the season, and that is you know, how do we act and live within these two spheres, the, the moral sphere and the political sphere? And if what is unique and excellent uh, and advantageous to Americans is that uh, to start, by and large, there's this level of dependence uh, on moral authority in the moral sphere, yet independence in the, in the political sphere, what, what happens over time? It's, it's very easy when you're drawn... Uh, into political independence and the exercise of one's own sovereignty uh, to become morally independent as well, uh, to, to think that there's really nothing beyond uh, that you ought to respect, that, um, you, that you do as you will politically and you do as you will morally. And what ha ends up happening is you cross these lines uh, whereby uh, those, those original principles that kind of held you together, all men are created equal, are discarded, uh, set aside, not applied in, in this situation, um, whether it be the Native American or the African American. And, and as we'll see later in, in the show, I think what we argue, right, is that they need to be reasserted, they need to be rediscovered, they need to be uh, applied. But the problem of not applying them in this situation leads us to say that they can't be applied at all. And, and then I think a lot of the debate over equality and equity that we're gonna talk about later in the show uh, deals with just this. But back quickly to, to, to the reading, uh, he says something on, on the nature of conquest. He compares the Spanish uh, conquest with the Anglo uh, conquest of, of the New World. And he says, the Spanish, with the help of unexampled monstrous deeds covering themselves with an indelible shame, could not succeed in exterminating the Indian race, not even prevent it from sharing their rights. The Americans of the United States have attained this double result with marvelous facility, tranquilly, legally, philanthropically, without spilling blood, without violating a single one of the great principles of morality, 
in the eyes of the world. One cannot destroy men while being more respectful of the laws of humanity. So here uh, Tocqueville discusses sorry, kind of the making of these treaties. Okay, well, we, we agreed to this. Well, you agreed to move westward. We agreed to take over your land. But, but at the end of the day, even if done legally, right, in the eyes of the world, it doesn't produce a result that is just for the other. Yeah, I think that's obviously dripping with irony, the way that he writes that passage that Americans have, have found this way that's so consistent with, of course, the ideas and ideals that Americans champion, the rule of law and constitutionalism and all the rest. I think to, you know, to add to the other passage that you mentioned earlier, one of the things that you find as you examine the history here is that you know, the, the federal government, right? think about Washington as representative of that, had, had a certain vision for, for just dealings that was uh, perhaps wise and, and noble in its description, but the Tocqueville says they never had a real prospect of carrying it out. The states didn't want justice. The states wanted the land on behalf of the people who were even more unjust, right? So there's a, there's a, the, the injustice is a bottom-up kind of thing. And the national government, whatever its vision, has no power or perhaps political inclination to stop it. Yeah, and this is really central to, to this whole conversation. I'm glad glad you bring it up, Matt, where you know, it's not the federal government that, that is kind of the, the, the main um, force that he criticizes. It, it's the people, right? It's, it's the mores of the people that um, push this, that, that make it happen. So we've had kind of a long discussion how right mores and religion and all the rest uh, can be of a great benefit for a democratic republic. But if you're more, if the mores of a people, if the habits of their heart are off on how they treat the other, uh, then you're going to see these um, great uh, abuses. So as he moves in and talks about uh, the African-American experience, he'll say, for example, that, okay, slavery has been dismantled in the North, but it's not been dismantled, you know, out of some great abolitionist push. It's, it's been dismantled by and large because a Northerner saw it in their best interest not to have to compete with African-Americans for the jobs that were present. And when he takes a look at Southern life and why it's not dismantled there, once again, the mores of uh, people living embrace slavery uh, out of self-interest. So um, there's this great passage where he says, you can make people unequal through the law, but it's much more miserable is when you make them unequal through mores that amplify prejudice. And, and here this, this passage is brought up because he talks about the difference between ancient slavery and modern slavery. Uh, ancient slavery in Greece and, and all the rest uh, is not, um, not race-based slavery. It's, it's based upon a, an individual being a master and having a slave, having a uh, indentured servant. But oftentimes the slave in these ancient societies was was well-read, uh, uh, became the teacher uh, within the family. But that's not the case in the modern practice of, of slavery. There's this desire, strong desire, to define the other as lesser than a human being. And it's that prejudice that he argues throughout this passage that is going to make the dismantling of slavery 
or the final result of these three races living on, on the North American continent, such a di- difficult thing to remedy that there will, there will be blood, <laughs> I think is, 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 is what you take uh, from this passage. And I think one of the things that he points out that's really powerful is the role that Christians played first in dismantling that ancient slavery. And he says, ridding the world of slavery for a thousand years, that may be an overstatement of the historical facts, but that Christians labored hard to end ancient slavery, that Roman slavery, and then they brought it back in in the West with this race-based slavery system to give up on really cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, going back to the fact that we're all descended from Adam and, and therefore equally made in the image of God. You know, the development of that, really the, the pro-slavery theology that was very much alive and well in the day when the Tocqueville visited America was really a rejection of, of those critical first chapters of the book of Genesis and other parts of scripture that teach so plainly the unity of, of human beings as, as made in the image of God. So I want to end our discussion by referencing a, an excerpt on page 347 near, near the end of his discussion. Uh, I think that one of the most moving passages in all of democracy in America, he says, uh, he writes, excuse me, I encountered an old man in the South of the Union who had formerly lived in illegitimate commerce with one of his African-American women. He had had several children from this illegitimate commerce who in coming into the world had become slaves of their father. Several times he had thought of at least willing them their freedom, but years passed before he could remove the obstacles set by the legislator to emancipation. During that time, old age had come and he was going to die. He then pictured to himself his sons dragged from market to market and passing from paternal authority to the whip of a stranger. These horrible images threw his dying imagination into delirium. I saw him racked by the anguish of despair, and I then understood that nature knew how to avenge herself for wounds the laws had given her. Just a remarkable, remarkable passage, right? That, that the man is awakened. Uh, his mores are awakened to the evil uh, that is, is slavery. So, um, our adjacent reading for the day uh, is Augustine's City of God, book 19, chapter 12, a chapter titled that even the fierceness of war and all this disquietude of men make towards this one end of peace, which every nature desires. And I, I chose this selection because I think here Augustine is trying to emphasize or reemphasize what are those aspects of our common humanity that, that bring us together, that can help us understand where each of us are in this world as we make our way through the human condition. Augustine writes, whoever gives even moderate attention to human affairs and to our common nature will recognize that if there is no man, first of all, who does not wish to be joyful, neither is there any one who does not wish to have peace. So as human beings, We seek joy and we want to have peace and all of the activities of our life, however different they are, are brought into being because of our desire for a peace. And we have different definitions of of what is peace, 
But the fact that all human beings desire peace is part of a, a, the puzzle of figuring out, okay, what is it that makes a human being tick? So whether it's a Native American or an African American or a European American, each is desirous of a peace and each kind of works and lives uh, toward that goal. And in recognizing that common desire for peace, we recognize our common humanity. So we can talk about our common humanity from a, a biological standpoint. We can talk about it from the standpoint of, of rights. Uh, and what he's doing is giving us an account of, of the things that we love, right? What are the, what are the loves uh, that human beings share? And I think that might be an, an opening for seeing something in the other person. Yeah, and I think that you know, this, this goes to our discussion of equality and, and equity because it, it, it speaks to, you know, okay, what, what are some common things that define a human being? Yes, they, they, Augustine is right here, we seek peace. We use different means to achieve a peace that we think is, is right, but, but we want joy and we want peace. Another thing we do as human beings in common, we don't know that we're doing it when we're doing it always, but we're not conscious of it, but we, we have an idea as to what justice is. And we, are, we make an appropriation as to what is just and, and what is unjust. Right? The fact that we have thought or speech allows us to do this. It's part of our biological nature, but it, it, we're different than other beings and that we can make these assertions. And I think this likewise plays into this discussion in Tocqueville and, and Augustine. Uh, we're going to make an accounting. We're going to have an accounting of justice. And, and that accounting is either going to be right uh, or it's going to be various levels of wrong. And if you don't see something for what it is, if you don't see a human being for what it is, which is your equal, then your, um, your view of justice is going to be distorted. Uh, and, you know, we, a couple of weeks back, we were talking about Aristotle and uh, justice as equality. And, and Aristotle tells us, right, that, that we all have a vision of what justice is that rests in a definition of equality. Uh, some people define equality in formal or numerical terms. So uh, one person counts for one so that, you know, in, in the world, every person ought to count for one. Uh, and Another way of viewing justice is viewing um, justice as what is uh, deserved or just dessert. Uh, this is a, a form of viewing equality in a proportionate rather than a numerical fashion. So um, there's a famous story that um, uh, he's, he's uh, teaching a student and, and uh, he says, you come across uh, two individuals uh, walking uh, down the road and you have a very tall man who's, who's wearing kind of a, a short uh, jacket and, and you see a very short man who's wearing a very long jacket that uh, is dragging along the ground. Uh, what do you do in that situation? Uh, and, and the student says, well, you take the, the short jacket off of the large man and you give it to the short man and the large jacket off of the short man and give it to the large man. And um, uh, the, the lesson goes, the teacher pulls out his whip and, and starts hitting the student. No, you haven't learned anything that I've told you. And the student says, why? What, what did I do that was wrong? Well, you assumed, right, that you were in a better place, right, to resolve or remedy the situation between the two men. But there was a good reason why the short man had the longer jacket, the tall man had the short jacket. So uh, this, this difference between viewing justice in terms of proportionate equality or numerical equality, Aristotle says is, is part and parcel of the human experience will, will always uh, be present. And I think 
you know, in the situation of Tocqueville and, and the three races, right? There's a viewing of the other as lesser than you. So you don't even grant that individual kind of a justice and numerical equality. You don't even consider them to be one like you. Uh, per, but perhaps, you know, on the other end, you can take it too far. You know, perhaps you can say, well, there ought to be no differences between anyone. And you try to create, instead of an artificial inequality, you create an artificial equality on the other end of the spectrum. So uh, this is part of the situation kind of that goes into um, why it's so difficult to find a just resolution to human affairs. We just don't see justice rightly. And, and perhaps, right, the real uh, justice that Aristotle is pointing us to, that Augustine is pointing us to, that Tocqueville is pointing us to, recognizes that there's, there's both what? There's both kind of a natural equality to humankind, and there's also present a natural inequality. And trying to um, you know, figure out laws and mores based upon those two truths uh, make human affairs difficult. But either way, if you go in a direction of artificial inequality or artificial equality, you're going to move further and further away from justice. And that's a nice point of transition to our headlines because we want to take up this issue we really introduced a couple of episodes ago of equity versus equality. I think there's there's so much of what you've just been saying there that that plays directly into this contemporary debate. So as we looked at the various efforts to review and ultimately to approve in many cases the cabinet appointments of Joe Biden, one of the interesting debates that emerged this last week uh, surrounded Merrick Garland's nomination for attorney general. And he was questioned rather closely by Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton on this question of equity versus equality. And Andy McCarthy wrote a piece responding to this and criticizing Garland's approach that, that, that quotes some of the language of one of the key early executive orders of Joe Biden on equity, and then tries to compare that to the principle of equality under the law. So we want to go through that piece a little bit and then add our, some of our own reflections on that, looking at that definition of equity and, and maybe bring in some other sources as we think about what's really at stake in this debate, right? Because it can seem semantic. It, it can seem like it's kind of abstruse, but there's, there's a lot going on here that I think is worth reflecting on. So here's how uh, McCarthy begins his piece. It was to be expected, but is disappointing nevertheless, that Attorney General nominee Merrick Garland has echoed the Biden administration line that its prioritization of equity is not a radical departure from the constitutional principle of equality under the law. In fact, the concepts are polar opposites. Right? That's McCarthy's judgment on the matter. And so he goes on to describe this interaction with, with Tom Cotton. And, and Cotton challenged Garland first on the question of, well, do you, do you think that discrimination is wrong? And naturally, Garland says, yes, discrimination is morally wrong. Absolutely. And then McCarthy continues, taking Garland at his word, it is hard to understand how the Justice Department under his stewardship could in good conscience apply Biden's equity guidance. Equity as explicated by the order's slippery prose is targeted discrimination. And that's McCarthy's summary of, of what would be necessary in order to actually accomplish the equity that's described in, in that text. So let's take a look at the text, and this goes back again to the executive order, the equity executive order that Joe Biden signed on the very first day of his presidency. 
says the term equity means the consistent and systematic fair, just, and impartial treatment of all individuals, including individuals who belong to underserved communities that have been not denied such treatment. Then it goes on to list a number of such groups. So fair, just, and impartial treatment of all individuals. Let's just pause there, Dave. What do, what do you notice in that definition of equity? Well, a couple things. Um, two words are introduced, uh, fair and, and the word we just were talking about, just, and they're added to impartial. Uh, so what is fair? Uh, what is just? Uh, if you define uh, equity as a fair and just uh, redistribution of things, well, then it strikes against the very heart of impartial. You're actually being partial because you're trying to remedy something uh, by, uh, by helping one uh, that's going to hurt uh, another. And I, I think the other thing that for me that strikes me as interesting here is that the definition of equity uh, from President Biden is deals with the treatment of individuals rather than kind of an older understanding of what justice is and impartiality in the actual execution of the laws where, where justice is blind, where the law ought to be blind to the individual. Here, you know, in this definition of equity, it's not only not blind, you're actually discriminating. You're saying this person needs this, this person doesn't need this. So it's it really is the, um, the polar opposite, right, of the original definition of American equality, which is equal rights for all and special privileges for none. And if we were to borrow from that same work of John Adams' thoughts on government we mentioned last week, uh, Adams describing a republic says the best republic is one that's able to secure an impartial and exact execution of the law. And so it's interesting, there's impartial again, but whereas in the definition of equity, you have these three seemingly competing standards of right, fair, just, and impartial. In the Adams account, you have impartial, which stands alone, presumably as the definition of justice and what is fair, and then exact, right, which confines the individual executing the law to the law. And, and it seems to be part of a broader understanding of a right separation of powers where the lawgiver gives the law, the executive branch then takes that law and applies it impartially and exactly does its job, but, but not another job. And what's interesting here when you talk about the treatment of all individuals is it seems to suggest there's a lot more than mere execution going on in the efforts of the Justice Department, other administrative agencies called upon to carry out this policy. They're going to have to be involved in doing much more than the exact execution of laws if they're going to actually accomplish the fair, just, and impartial treatment of all individuals. It, it really is amazing. I mean, what you're drawing out in this, this debate is that uh, the executive authority is actually crossing over and practicing adjudication and is crossing over and, and, and kind of introducing legislation by adding the words just and fair to the order itself. So the, the, it's really, got, that's the definition of tyranny, right? When one branch of government takes over, right? The, the role, the job, the responsibilities of the other branches. And this is what's happening on this executive order relative to equity. You take over adjudication, you take over uh, legislation. And it's not impartial at all. And, it, and it's not, I think, legal at all either. It's, it's actually an abuse of power 
Uh, and um, but it's it's celebrated, it's cheered, it's embraced. Why? Uh, because it's a quick end around. It 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 gets to what you want. That just vision of a society quicker, faster, now in a more immediate fashion. But what you lose in all of that is you lose uh, the the constitutional architecture that is going to allow sides to deal with one another, to have discussions. And just like you were mentioning earlier with regard to the Equality Act, uh, what ends up happening when you force your opinions down another throat is it, it produces a backlash. It, it, you're not only tyrannizing over another, uh, but you're endangering yourself because that other might come back at you uh, when they gain power. To amplify that point, McCarthy concludes the piece, equality is a social condition Equity is social engineering. The Biden administration, including its incoming attorney general, who will be enforcing the civil rights laws, does not want you to worrying your pretty little head about equity versus equality. But there is a world of difference. That is why Biden officials are so insistent on supplanting the latter with the former. Equality is a defense against government, a mandate that everyone enjoy equal opportunity, free of discriminatory restrictions. Equity is government oppression, unleashing bureaucrats to impose equal results, which is conceivable only if opportunity is subject to discrimination based on race or other government favored status. You can have the constitution's equality or you can have Biden's equity. You can't have both. And so I think we're going to see over these next really months and years, perhaps of this administration, this tension unfold as, as we think about, okay, what does it mean to give up on equality and impartiality as the standard and to adopt this principle of equity? That's interesting because I know we've mentioned him before, the, the great progressive thinker, Herbert Crowley, uh, uh, tremendously influential on this front uh, over 100 years ago. And it, it's ba- basically what the Biden administration is doing is following Crowley's playbook on equality and equity. Uh, Crowley, to his great credit, uh, uh, intellectually honest, I mean, just out front you know, with all of these things, says that a remaking of American democracy is necessary for it to fulfill its promise. And what that's going to take is um, is setting aside that older definition of, of the American Democratic Republic where justice is equal rights for all, special privileges for none. And actually, no, um, being partial, uh, being interventionist, uh, entering into the societal game uh, so that you can actually uplift those who are have-nots and try to form uh, a, a greater balance between the haves and the have-nots. And you know, when I go through this reading with my students, uh, they they cheer on Crowley here because they they bought in like, oh, this is this is just finally we're going to have a, a we're going to level the playing field. But it, it's really interesting, Matt. Right. It, you know, what you're dealing with, and Crowley, Crowley suggests this, is by nature, right, there is an unequal distribution of talent, right? Not all of us can do the same things that others can do. I mean, I can't throw a 97, you know, mile an hour pitch, you know, I don't have that physical talent. I, I, I you know, there are many things that I can't do that talents it that have been given to another, but but likewise, there is kind of a circumstantial disadvantage to life, right? Some people are are born into a place uh, with uh, kind of a, a physical and, and moral architecture that that tends towards uh, easier flourishing. 
So you take the disadvantages present within natural distribution and you add to them circumstantial disadvantage. And yes, you have in this world, right? You have people, right? Who have more than, than others. And Crowley's goal is to use the artifice of government to make up for those inequalities found within nature, which is, is a very, very different human project than the one set forth upon uh, by the American founders. One of the biggest challenges in that project is how much additional wisdom and knowledge that it requires. Because you think about this executive order, and if you read more of the executive order, you see there's instructions to each department of the executive branch to go through its policies and to consider whether they produce unequal results based upon the way the policy is structured or maybe the way that the program is administered and to go through this. And of course, it's, it's, it's good to be looking for places where, you know, you're, you, contrary to your intentions or design, people are slipping through the cracks. But as you move through this and as you think about, okay, how do I then use this process to construct justice, right? To actually bring about equity in this more total sense, you, you realize just how many difficult judgments will be required and how many facts you've got to have just in order and how much morally informed reasoning is required in order to do this well. And so this is the kind of discretion, right? That ends up being the opposite of that exact administration of the law. You can't do this exactly, right? It's going to have to require lots of discretion. And of course, as we think about the way that human beings tend to use discretion, and here Crowley is, is very plain on this point. He says, it's, it's got to be the job of the state to see that its own friends are victorious, Right? And of course, that category of friends can, can be people that, that really need help, right? that are sort of the rightful friends of the state. But we also know, again, with our human failings, that sometimes it's just the friends. right? It's just the, the political allies, the, the people that are adjacent to us in some way, the people that, that we like rather than the people that we don't. And to think about giving the government the power that would go along with the mandate of achieving these kind of results and, and, and the job of choosing to support its friends and then presumably to punish its enemies is something worth thinking very carefully about given our fallen condition. Well, here, here's a question for our audience. Over the last 60 years where you've seen the great expansion of these programs, who's done better by the program? the managers of the poor or the poor. Now we're going to turn our attention to the grade book, a little lighter theme for us as we wrap up the show. So ever since Punxsutawney Phil stuck us with six more weeks of winter, as we were saying at the top of the show, I think we've all been looking for signs of spring, a little bit of hope. The Red Sox have their first spring training baseball game this Sunday against the Twins. So as baseball's off season is beginning to wind down and the regular season is beginning to be upon us thought we'd go through and grade some of the biggest transactions of this of this off season a little, a little quieter i think than some recent years probably because of covid and some of the financial challenges that the teams are facing but let's start with the the two biggest free agent signings dave i want to get your thoughts on number one george springer signed a six-year 150 million dollar contract 
with the Blue Jays, taking his talents north of the border, at least once they finally are able to play in Toronto again. Yeah, I'm going to give this a, a B. I mean, Springer's a, a, a great player. Um, I'm just, you know, I, I always wonder when the, the contracts get, get up there over $100 million. I always have this kind of kind of the Alex Rodriguez, Rodriguez effect where, you know, is at, at a certain point, when is the player not going to be earning that money? So, you know, maybe the first year, you know, $25 million's a, a bargain, but come year five, it's not. Uh, so uh, Springer, uh, this kind of lower number here. So I, I, I would say, uh, I'd probably say probably a B on that. Yeah, I'm going to get right a little bit lower. I think probably a C. I agree with you on the, the six years. You know, he's already in his 30s. So you're pushing past your prime almost from day one. And Springer's one of those guys that's, that's, that's very talented, but he's got some holes in his swing. And I think there's opportunity as he gets older for pitchers to exploit that. So it's not going to surprise me if, you know, three years in, he's just just trying to fall off the cliff a little bit. He's, he's the kind of player that oftentimes has an early peak and a earlier decline. So my guess is the Blue Jays will be sorry by about year three. But no doubt, first couple of years, he could put up numbers that are, you know, 40 million a year numbers and at least give them some value in the short term. The number one per season average fridging contract was Trevor Bauer, out in your neck of the woods, Dave, signing a three-year contract for $102 million with the Dodgers. Wow, I like the shorter term of the contract. Uh, it's just amazing, though, right? That, that probably works out to about a million dollars per start, right? If he yep. gets in 34 starts. That's right. And, um, yeah, Bauer's, you know, a, a, a good pitcher, but he's not, well, he's maybe even great uh, or, you know, an ace, but he doesn't have that track record over, you know, five to 10 years of those kind of older pitchers like, you know, Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin and, you know, others where they kind of earn right. That million dollar a start. So uh, I'd give this a C plus B minus somewhere in there. I think I'd give it about the same. Uh, he, he's able to get out of it after each year. So we'll see whatever happens, you know, maybe just like a one year, $40 million contract Dodgers get their get to defend their world series title Bauer gets a championship and then he moves on that's 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 a real possibility he was looking for something longer term they came in with a lot of money up front so maybe that works on both ends but yeah I mean Bauer certainly has made the most out of a great Cy Young winning season last year but his his record is up and down and he's definitely not a guy that you can say well he's just guaranteed to come out there and week after week, year after year, earn that money. All right, now the biggest contract of the offseason wasn't actually a free agent contract, but the one that was signed by Fernando Tatis, 14 years, Dave, $340 million after playing a grand total of 143 games with the Padres so far over two seasons. We'll take him through his age 35 season. What do you make of that deal? Wow. I mean, that's just, it's just great. Like I'm thinking like 14 years out, uh, what that contract will look like. And <laughs> that really is the, I'm um, having that Alex Rodriguez moment. And, and I just, I'd give this a D. I just, it's, uh, I, I'd much rather pay the person higher over a shorter term and kind of see, see how well they, they do as they get into their 20s. Um, never mind, you know, having a contract that goes through someone's middle 30s. Yeah. I mean, the thing about it is, less than 25 million a season. This could be an incredible bargain. I mean, Tatis has put up amazing numbers 
in those 143 games. So this, this is the kind of gamble that for the Padres could really pay off. I mean, they, they could be saving them $200 million easily over the life of that contract, or they could be stuck with these payments just forever. And wondering why do we, why do we do that? We got Manny Machado for 300 million. Now we've got Tatis for 340 million. We're not Los Angeles. We're San Diego. Do the San Diego Padres have those kind of resources? I think it's a kind of a fun gamble. I, I give him credit for that. I think, you know, on both sides, you know, Tatis is saying, yeah, give me my money now. You know, I'm, I'm not going to hold out for that massive, massive $700 million payday. I might have been able to get in five years. And the Padres say, yeah, you know, we'll take a chance on this guy. We think he's the face of the franchise. We want him to be here for his whole career. So I'm going to give it a B plus. Brings us to the Tocqueville's crystal balls who wrap up the show. No new quarterback trades this last week, so we can't update our progress on that front. Uh, we're going to go back to a, a shorter term prediction. We're going to make our picks for the Golden Globes, which are coming up on Sunday. I would not have known that, but <laughs> Dave, you uncovered that with a little Googling research. And so let's talk about the four big categories on the movie side and the television show side. And I want to get your predictions for who will win each of these awards. All right. So first, best picture drama. You've got The Father, Mank, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, and The Trial of the Chicago Seven. So I've seen three of these. Uh, Mank was was awful. I mean, I just did. I think we watched it over three nights. We maybe four. We broke it into like twenty five minute because uh, you just fall asleep like minute ten. Um, so yeah, it's good good going to bed um, viewing. Uh, Nomadland was was solid and good, and it just has the feel of of a um, of a winner. So I'm going to say that Nomad, Nomadland wins. I really did like the trial of Chicago Seven, though. I thought it was um, very well done. It had a good pace to it. You know, great, great acting. And um, so I'd probably choose that if I was choosing. But I think that the uh, they'll go with uh, Nomadland. Another thing about the trial of the Chicago Seven is it, it'd be great if more people watched it and applied kind of its aspirational sense of justice uh, to um, those that you don't like in the political arena. Uh, but it's, it's very easy to see the injustice done to your side, but harder to see when you do injustice to another. So, but it, I think it did a good job of portraying uh, that in, in Chicago. Well, having seen none of these, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm basically using the political movie rubric here uh, as the politics professor and assuming the political nature of the voters. So I'm going to go with the trial of the Chicago seven as my prediction. I know it's not the favorite, but uh, there's a little bit of buzz from what I can see out there about that. So I'm going to choose that as my best picture drama selection. All right. Second category, best picture musical and comedy. We have Borat subsequent movie film, Hamilton music, Palm Springs and the prom. What do you say, Dave? My guess here is that Hamilton is probably the favorite, but I, I think your political rubric is going to come in uh, here because Hamilton's so like 2008 progressivism. It's not 2021 progressivism. It's become right? problematic. Yeah. 
Exactly. So they can't win just on that basis alone. So Borat, he's he's been hyper-political uh, this year. Uh, he's always kind of had his hand in that a little bit. So I'm, I'm going to say that uh, uh, Borat takes it here because he's been that much more outspoken on things. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's, you know, he, I believe the film's got a few clips at the expense of prominent Republicans. So that's got to help with the voters. And so I expect that one to carry home the prize in a Slight upset, perhaps, over Hamilton. All right, now we got a TV, best drama series. We've got The Crown, Lovecraft Country, The Mandalorian, Ozark, and Ratchet. Well, here, my, I love Ozark, but I don't think it, it has a chance. Uh, Jason Bateman just does a, a great job in, in that. It's just actually great cast overall. But I'm, I'm going to play it safe here. I think the favorite, The Crown, wins. It's uh, a, an easy win, uh, Everyone loves the crown uh, and, and it takes it. Yep. And enough hits at Thatcher to probably satisfy the voters and princess die. Everyone loves princess die. So, yep. I think that's probably going to be a reward for the latest season of the crown. And if I had to pick the only one I've really watched faithfully is the Mandalorian, but we know that that's definitely not happening after Gina Carano. So that's out. The crown I think has to win. All right. Lastly, we have the best musical and comedy series, Emily in Paris, The Flight Attendant, The Great, A Creek with a Name that Can't Be Pronounced on Our Family Show, and <laughs> Ted Lasso. Uh, the Creek, the Canadian show, uh, takes it. Um, it's, well, A, a number one, it's Canadian. Uh, B number two, it, it hits kind of every uh, button uh, with regard to uh, social uh, mores. Uh, so um, fan favorite. Uh, and I think uh, my my wife is a, a diligent watcher of the show. I think went through it in about two weeks. So I think it takes it. It's it's actually pretty funny. Um, uh, so, but uh, yeah, that's right. who I think wins. Okay. Well, I'm going to go with Ted Lasso only because I've heard good things about it. And I'm got to got to pick something that's a little bit off the off the radar and maybe hope for the best here. We will see next week how well we did. I don't expect to do well, so, given how little of these I've seen. So we probably should have, you should have sent an email to Alyssa Wilkinson and, and, and figured she would have told us exactly who's going to win here. So yeah. we didn't do our research well on that. Well, I, I did look up on Rotten Tomatoes to see who they had as the favorites, but that's about as far as I went. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening, as always. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget we're on Instagram at Democracy in America Today, and you can contact us by email, democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. Look forward to talking to you again next week. Mm -hmm.